Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Philippians 4, and the last sermon that we did was titled, Less Flesh, More Christ. And, you know, understanding the flesh, listen, we're born again of the Spirit, a thing that's not easy to see in terms of physical attributes, but certainly characteristics and how the Lord changes our lives. But we're still tied to these bodies of death. How do we know? Because we still go to funerals. So there's a, an, an awakening that happens inside of us when we're born again, but we still live in skin and bones and flesh and the part of us that, that decays. Uh, when we talk about less flesh and more Christ, we talk less about how we should rely on our physical attributes, talents, gifts, and such, and to allow God to be a larger part of our life and really to give him first place in our life. So that was chapter 3. This morning in chapter 4, we're going to look at parting thoughts. So the, the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. This is the fourth chapter. Uh, basically, it's the end of the letter. And he's saying to the Philippians, you know, he's given them really nine concepts that they can work with to have a successful Christian walk. Because remember, he's in a Roman prison. Christianity is becoming illegal. At some point, he's going to be martyred. Uh, and he wants to make sure, whether he lives or he dies, that they are set because he helped to establish and plant this church. However, I think what's fascinating, and this is why the Bible is called the living word, is because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. We either believe that or we don't believe that. But a lot of credible evidence that goes to that is the fact that over the last 2,000 years, we can take any of these nine parting thoughts that he speaks about and use it for ourselves to incorporate into our lives to have a successful Christian walk. You know, there's a lot of old books and ancient books that were there just for that time. They made sense for that time. But the Bible being the living word, if the Lord tarries another thousand years, this will be uh, worthwhile and useful for the church for the next thousand years or so. I don't think it's going to take them that long, but just saying. <laughs> so we're going to jump in, and uh, starting with verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. So the first out of nine is to stand fast in the Lord. In other words, don't give ground when it comes to Jesus Christ, the cross. You know, I just read an article about a bishop in Europe who decided that she was going to have all the crosses of the buildings, the church buildings, cut off to appeal to those of other faiths. You don't get it. This lady doesn't get it. I don't care that she's a bishop. I don't care what her title is. The cross is what's attractive because the cross says that God sent his son to die for our sins so we could have everlasting life. You're going to cut the cross off the buildings? You know? Uh, stand fast, Calvary Chapel Crossfields. Don't let anybody, don't let society, don't let the media poison you and pull that power away from you because the world is trying to make Christianity completely ineffective and powerless. So he says, stand fast. And for 2,000 years, many Christians have stood fast. We see, too, love in his description of the Philippian church. Love. His terms for them. He says, beloved or greatly loved. Christianity is supposed to be a warm faith. 
The Apostle Paul could be tough at times when he spoke in 1 Corinthians about a wayward church, but he had so much love in his heart and wasn't afraid to share it on pen and paper. And he basically had strong emotions for these people that he helped establish and establish this church. You know, I mean, I just looked at this weekend and, and, you know, we try to do a lot of things even outside of Sunday to get people to get to know each other. You know, Friday night was a great night of worship. You know, it was for a few hours going on. It was a blessing. And uh, Saturday morning was the Women's Fellowship, a phenomenal turnout for the, the first uh, the women's devotion of the fall. Uh, and this is where people get together. And I just heard a lot of ladies talk about, you know, just the connections they made. Christianity is supposed to be a warm faith, right? Two, he also says, my longed-for brethren. He had a yearning and a desire to see the Philippians again. They weren't family, right? He didn't know them prior to the Lord putting him into their path, but he learned to really love these people, right? Three, he says, my joy and my crown. Well, we know joy is, and I'm going to cover all the different uh, instances that the Apostle Paul speaks about joy in this short letter, but he also speaks about them as my crown. Now, the Bible talks about different crowns or different blessings that when we go to heaven, uh, he's going to say, this is what you did, and this is a great reward for what you did. We know the soul-winning crown or the crown of rejoicing is when we can lead another person to Christ to tell them about the good news of salvation. It isn't a, and, and you know what's funny? I'm going to say this a few times. God develops beautiful principles and concepts, and Satan tries to make them abhorrent. And he actually does a good job to the un, unspiritually trained. It isn't punching a card. It isn't, well, I've got to get so many converts. It's natural. It's relational. It just happens. You know? And when we go to heaven, many of us hopefully will receive that soul winner's crown because you poured enough time and energy from your life into somebody else and they got saved. So you know, will we have those crowns? We've been Christian 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Have we ever let anybody or been a part of planting that seed? Okay? I'm just going to say this. When I was a kid, when I was a child, my parents took me to many different churches. Uh, my parents were divorced, so I would be, go back and forth. They, my parents were constantly moving. And we went to so many different churches. And I can't remember one church where I ever met anybody. And I don't say that in a good way. You know, again, Christianity is supposed to be a warm faith. Love is supposed to be a part of it. You know, do we take the time to get to know our brothers and sisters in the body of Christ? You know, this whole idea of a Sunday Christian thing was never part of the early church. And it's not part of the persecuted church. You know, you go to Syria and Iraq, they meet another Christian, they, they fall on each other, they hug each other because they're being persecuted. So that, that, that tightness is there. I submit to you, Sunday church is a Western phenomenon, and it's not biblical. All right, verse 2. He continues, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be a part of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, to help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So three out of nine is the importance of unity. All great concepts, all great qualities. There were two well-known ladies in the church that were awesome ladies that were having a dispute. And it was obvious to everybody. And Paul needed to address it in this letter. Now we don't know what that division is, but we know that it couldn't continue. You see, crisis management is a part of leadership. 
And I talk to people who maybe are interested in becoming pastors or interested in becoming in leadership in the church. And it, the great part of it is to teach the Bible. And people come up afterwards and say they got something out of it. The not so enjoyable part of it is crisis management. But that's part of what we do. And the Apostle Paul was addressing this in that letter. Okay, Division will serve as a distraction if it's not dealt with. He spoke, speaks about his, the true companion. This is an unnamed person who is giving the task he was given the task of working the issue out with these two ladies. Now, sometimes when you put on the proverbial referee uniform with the stripes and the whistle and you try to referee two parties, um, well, sometimes they don't necessarily appreciate if you say hard things to both parties and then you become the person that they're upset with now when they're fine with each other. I see some head shaking. So <laughs> crisis management can be a thankless job. Nevertheless, it's something that's needed. You know, the Lord, the Lord will reward us for it. Uh, but I love this about Paul. He basically tells these two ladies, and he talks about these two ladies. He doesn't say, oh, they're bad. He speaks about them, how important they are. Remember, the Philippian church was largely started by women. And, you know, this church now started to grow. But because of these faithful women that labored with Paul when he was over there, you know, he has high expectations of these two ladies. You know, and I talked about this uh, last Sunday, the Sunday before. You know, and I've said this to people, and it's been said to me. You're better than that. You know, I, I expect more from you. And that's actually a compliment. You know, this type of behavior, it, honestly, it's not you. you. You know, you're so much better than that. And it, honestly, I, whenever it's been said to me, it's, it's pushed me to strive for better things, to say, you know what, I really should put that away. That's petty. So you, you love the way, <laughs> the way he talks to people. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and he speaks about those that are his co-laborers in, in, in the book of life. What is the book of life? The book of life is measured or mentioned many times in the scripture, especially in Revelation where the Lord opens this, you could just imagine this big book. <laughs> and there's so many names in the, in the list. The book of life. Can I tell you something? I know my name's written in there. And the reason being is because, and I'm not being presumptuous, because I trusted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he's promised me passage into heaven and beyond. Is your name in the book of life? If you don't know the Lord, the way you can know if, if it's really there is if you follow the Lord, is if you trust him as your Lord and Savior. Everybody's name should be in the book of life. But the fact is that that's not going to be the case during judgment. He is going to open that book and some will be, you know, disturbed to find that their name's not written in there. So you can be assured that your name is written in there. But you've got to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Verse 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness or your graciousness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So the fourth point is joy and gentleness. This is, can also be translated gentleness as moderation. That Greek work, word has a few, um, you know, in the semantic range, it has a few different words that that uh, speak to that particular word. But Paul keeps coming back to this theme of joy. Now, I, I said I was going to do it, and I did do it. In this very short letter, I counted 15 times that he says joy or rejoice in this letter. To truly know the Lord is to rejoice. And I say to some, try it. You know, I think the, one of the most heartbreaking things about seeing Christians finding peace and contentment and joy and fulfillment in their lives is they're looking in the world 
They're looking for love in all the wrong places. You know what I'm saying? Like that song was years ago when I was a kid. But the right place to find it is in the Lord. To truly know the Lord is to rejoice. It really is. And you don't know it until you've tried it and experienced it. That's really good. He also speaks about moderation. You know, Jesus was gentle. Jesus was moderate. Um, and, and in one of those particular definitions, when we look at that, is, is temperateness. Is, it says the Lord is at hand. The Lord's coming back. Are we in moderation? You know, you, you, at times you'll meet believers who um, have to have the best of everything. They have such a high opinion of themselves that everything they get is better than you. You know, your bling is nice and their bling is even better. You know, your clothes, their clothes. Your car, their car. There's no moderation there. And it's, it's really not, it's not nice. It's not, you know, it's, it, I don't know. I don't, it's moderation. <laughs> so we, we need to have moderation. I mean, some people live as if they're going to be living on the earth forever. And as Christians, we're not. We're just passing through. It's a temporary uh, dwelling. It's a temporary home. Verse 6 continues. He says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So the fifth out of nine is allow the peace of God to take the place of anxiety and worry. And I've said this before in counseling, change the channel. I mean, if you're watching a scary movie, and it was, you know, you're going to get nightmares. You change the channel. We're, watch something nicer. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes we have to do that in our brain, folks. We get so focused on something that's destructive or frightening or whatever. And we have to change the channel. And I would say this. Why waste time worrying when we can spend time getting to know the Lord and drawing upon His peace? Uh, Dr. Walter Cavert, uh, I believe he was a Christian, did a study Check this out, an extensive study. And he said that only 8% of matters that people worry about were legitimate. That's single digits, 8%. He said 92%, check out this word that he used, were imaginary. Wow, that's a powerful word when it comes to worry. 92% were imaginary. They didn't come true. Now, I know I have some worriers here. So, and this wasn't part of my message, but if we could put it up on the screen, I want to read to you what Jesus says about worry in Matthew 6, because I think it's really important. Matthew 6, 25, Jesus says this. He says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? But what about the advertisements that we see every day? You know what I'm saying? It's so important, right? It's so important fashion. It's so important what we wear. It's so important the appearance that we give off. In verse 26, he says, look at the birds of the air. And can I tell you something? I take this stuff literally. And I have looked at birds. <laughs> you know, my wife has a lot of birdhouses around the property and all the different beautiful birds. And they're there in the winter, they're there in the summer, they're there in the hurricanes. And he says, look at the birds of the air. For they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add more one cubit to his stature? 
So why do you worry about clothing? Now, back then, clothing was simple. Today, there's all kinds of clothing, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Style has really changed. I mean, you can, you can fill up a house and hoard your house with all these rooms with clothing, right? He says, why worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon, which was one of the most glorious kings that ever lived, in all his glory was not even dressed or arrayed like one of these. And he's speaking about a Middle Eastern lily that just grows up in parched conditions. Just grows up. It's not tended to. It's not cared for. It's, it's wild. But these lilies are so beautiful. And people actually will pick them, dry them out, and burn them and use them for fuel, right? And, and Jesus is saying, look at the Father and I. Look what we created. Look at that, that weed that's just, well, look how beautiful it is. Look, that King Solomon in all his glamour, wasn't even arrayed like that beautiful lily. Sometimes I think we need to just get away from technology and go out into nature, you know what I'm saying, um, and just check it out. He says, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not m much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things, the Gentiles, now in context, he meant the unbelievers of the time, the, they seek these things. But you, people of faith, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. Remember, God supplies our needs. He doesn't supply, supply our greeds. That's very important. You know, it's some, oh, I didn't get this and I didn't get that. Maybe they're part of the greeds list. There's a needs list, and, and today, people have, they, they confuse the lines. It's like Venn diagrams, there's stuff in the middle, you know? But it's either a need or it's a greed. He continues, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. How many of us have laid in bed at night worrying about what tomorrow is going to bring? The 92% that we worried about that never took place. Ah, some hands, some smiles. Let me read that again. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. I love the way Jesus says this. Tomorrow is an inanimate object. It's nothing. He's speaking about it. He's personifying tomorrow. And there's always a tomorrow. Wherever you are in time, there's a tomorrow. It's just the way linear time works. He's a master, the Son of God. He says, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. All right. Now that we're all not going to worry anymore, let's move on. <laughs> so he says, he speaks about prayer and he speaks about supplication, which is the part of prayer where we ask for things. But there's a lot more to prayer than just asking for things from God. He speaks about thanksgiving. What I love about thanksgiving is that it, it keeps, in my life I know, it keeps complaining at a minimum. Now, and I've said this before, part of my prayer life, and you can ask my wife, we pray together, um, is, is I thank God for things that I didn't get. You know, I haven't been in a car crash in a long time. And I'd say that to people and they go, knock on wood. Really? That's superstitious. What's knocking on wood? Thank God. You know what I'm saying? And, and people get, like you see, they get twisted when I say these things. Wow, this hasn't happened. This hasn't happened. This hasn't happened in a while. And I'm like, wow. God, you're so awesome. So sometimes my list of things that didn't happen to me in the last year or few years or whatever, it's, it's, I'm thankful for. So not just to thank God for what we do have, but what we don't have and we don't want. You see what I'm saying? When we talk about prayer, this can really be opened up. So three, he speaks about the peace of God. This is something that can bring serenity to any difficult situation. The peace of God is there for the taking. Right? 
and the peace of God for surpasses all understanding. You can't examine the peace of God in the laboratory. You can't put on the, the rubber gloves and the lab coat and the, the little hat and stuff and just go and let's see, the peace of God. Let's, let's play with this. Let's manipulate it. Let's look at empirical, empirical standards. Let's put electric to it. Let's dip it in solution. It's not that kind of thing. It's the peace of God. It's supernatural. It surpasses all understanding. My expression is it makes no sense to us in the flesh. It makes no sense to the world. But it's there. It just is. It can't be figured out. But when you, when you lay hold of it, you know that it's washed over you. It's a wonderful thing. And he speaks about having it keep guard. Or let me go back to verse 5. Oh, excuse me. It will, it will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. And this word guard is like a military guard. It stands guard. Because things every day try to invade our hearts and our minds. You read the news. You go on social media. You have conversations with people. There's an invasion taking place. The enemy is trying to get into the castle of your mind and your heart. And he's saying, let the peace of God guard your hearts and your mind. Right? Let it stand watch. And I, I, I got to tell you something. I like the news too. I like to know what's going on in the world. But if you look at the news long enough, it can make you depressed. It can make you angry. And sometimes you just got to put the mouse down and step away from the computer. You know what I'm saying? Go pray. Go help, look at nature. Um, and make sure that the peace of God is still guarding our minds and our hearts. Very, very important. And I know folks that succumb to this. They, they get bombarded with social media and the news and, and, and they just get, they're angry and they're just ready to snap. And you're like, what, what's, what are you so upset about? Ah, yeah, there's stuff going on. <laughs> but it, it, it's either, we're le either allowing it to guard us or we're not at any given point in time. Verse 8 it says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, Whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue, and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the peace of God will be with you. So six out of nine, to have a proper focus in life. A proper focus. And Christianity has a lot to do with being properly focused. What are we focusing on? Now, I want to go through these qualities, and let's do that with the idea of where, where do I stack up? Where does my lifestyle stack up? Where do my friends and associates or things that I allow into my life to stack up? Let's look at this. Whatever things are true. Stop believing the lies we see on TV and in gossip circles. Because there's plenty of gossip circles. They're everywhere. They're even on the internet now. All right? What things are true? Focus on God's truth. And sometimes Christians, I think, can be guilty of not doing enough research. They hear the first thing and they run with it. Proverbs 18, 13, 18, 17 says, basically, don't believe the first thing you hear. Do a little research. God commands us to do that. Do a little investigatory work. What is true and what's false? Continues, whatever things are noble, meaning honest or honorable, Again, not focusing on the trashiness in society and in politics. Whatever things are just, that word means innocent or equitable. 
These are the type of things and people that we should be gravitating towards. Whatever things are pure, modest, or clean, as opposed to some of the sleaziness we see in images and language and in our culture. Whatever things are lovely, that word can also mean to be friendly towards, to be friendly towards. Christians, are we approachable? When we go out into the world, do we have a, an attitude? We have an attitude of superiority. We have an attitude of don't bug me. We have, you know, just by our body language, we could put people off. Or are we friendly towards, you know, even in church, right? Are we, are we friendly? You know, are we interested in others? Would we put, ever put ourselves aside to help another? Whatever things are of good report, reputable or well-spoken of. Is the, if there is any virtue, virtue can mean also valor, to be courage in the face of danger. And you think of maybe the military or uh, first responders on the front line. But in an everyday sense, it's cool in the face of pressure and criticism to receive that pressure. And I tell you something, any leadership position, you're going to receive criticism. You're going to receive, it's just the way it is today. Any leader is just savaged at times. But are we cool in the face of that pressure and criticism, not falling apart? Would it, if, if there's anything praiseworthy or commendable. Paul says meditate on these things. In other words, put them into practice. There's an old expression, garbage in, garbage out. If we eat, <laughs> you've seen the studies, uh, what is it, supersize me, 30 days of McDonald's. Sorry to the McDonald's lovers, but you know, the guy did that for 30 days and his blood test, his blood was off, everything was off. You know what I'm saying? Um, you, know, you, you know what I'm talking about. But garbage in, garbage out could also apply to our minds. What are we putting into our eyes, our ears? What are we putting into our minds? If it's garbage, then garbage is going to come out of us. Right? When you recycle garbage, you just have recycled garbage. Right? Put these things into practice. Meditate on them. And the Apostle Paul said, basically, as you watched him do it, do it. Now, was he being... A braggart? No, he wasn't. But he was a discipler. And he did set an example. And maybe there was a crisis that went on in Philippi when he was there, and he handled it well. As you watch me handle that, that's the way you should be handling that. Uh, doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we're going to do it right every time. But if we are discipling, we are mentoring, then we do set an example at times. Verse 10. He says, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Seven out of nine is to be content in all circumstances. Now, there's a lot of teaching today that says we should be content only when things go well. As a matter of fact, we should try to manipulate God and twist His arm to get Him to do the things that we want Him to do so that we can always be content, we can always be healthy, we can always be wealthy. And a lot of these places pack their churches, but they're not preparing their followers for when the storms come. Because when the storms come, if you're getting garbage in, garbage out, you're on junk food, even Christian teaching, that's all about the good things. Not about sacrifice, not about sin, not about change. Okay? Then what happens when the crisis occurs? Two things happen. The followers either believe that God doesn't love me, 
because all these other people, look at the pastor, he's, he's so successful. Or they think that they're just not doing it right. They're a bad Christian. A few years ago, I had a woman call me, <clears throat> and she was from one of these overly exaggerated churches, probably within a 35-minute radius. She was there for 10 years, and she said, I think I have a demonic presence in my apartment. Now, this getting to know my wife and I, getting to know this young lady over the years, she's a very balanced person. Uh, so we didn't know where the phone call was coming from, but I said, okay, do you, what does the Bible say? She goes, I'm not sure. I said, how long have you been a Christian? She goes, 10 years. How long have you been going to a church? 10 years. Which church is it? She told me. Oh, they're very light on God's word. So this young lady was now in a crisis. So I went over the scriptures. We actually made a connection in her life, and she actually changed churches to a Bible-believing church. Because when the crisis came, she was unprepared. She had no idea. She didn't know that the Bible says that he who is in you, the Holy Spirit, is greater than he who is in the world. She didn't know about what Jesus said about casting out unclean entities. She didn't know any of that stuff. Garbage in, garbage out. There's an expression that prosperity has done more to harm believers than adversity. If we look at the context, the Apostle Paul was in prison. He lost everything. He actually wasn't, let's, let's, let's look at this in context. That's very key. He didn't ask anything from the Philippians. He didn't beg them for money. He didn't manipulate. He didn't do any of that stuff. But the Philippians were always looking to see how they could support a work of God. They knew the Apostle Paul was doing this, this work. They knew it was Holy Spirit inspired. And he says, you, you lacked opportunity. They were looking for an opportunity to get behind this work. That was just their conviction. And he goes, I think what he was saying was irrespective of either if I get out of prison or not, if they take my head off or not, you guys keep doing what you're doing because this is awesome. This is a great thing that's inside of you, right? Verse 13, he says, I can do some things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. Ah, you're all awake this morning. <laughs> Um, many of you have this uh, memorized. I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. And that one didn't slip by. You know what I'm saying? Number eight out of nine is true empowerment. When Christians look for empowerment outside of God, they put him aside. He's not moving fast enough. They don't like his will. They go into the world. They fail. It could be self. It could be the world. It could be fame. It could be money. Um, my uncle, uh, he, his whole life, ever since I was a little boy, I remember him talking about winning the lottery. Boy, he was persistent. I mean, he went on for decades until he eventually passed. He never won the lottery. But he thought that this was his big ticket, literally, um, facetiously, pun intended, so to speak. But it wasn't, and it's sad. You know, I, I believe that before he died, he did receive the Lord. I know my mother witnessed to him many times, and we had, uh, but... You know, he was looking outside. He was looking at the world. And it didn't pan out for him. Now, does this mean that whatever we ask God to do, he's going to do for us? No. It has to be in his will. And it can't be sinful things. It doesn't say, I can do all sinful things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. It's incongruous with his nature and his character. Okay? But... If it's in his will, if it's something that he wants us to do, if it's something that there's an agreement in prayer, we, literally, we can do anything. And Jesus often said to his followers, you're limited by your faith, your lack of faith in this area. 
14. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians also know that in the beginning of the, go- of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Big difference, big difference. Indeed, I have all and abound. (laughs) He had all. Did they let him take his luggage into the Roman prison? Did he have his freedom? The Apostle Paul, for him, he got it. He had Christ. To him, that was all. Amazing. That's why I love this guy so much. Um, Look, can't wait to meet him. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma and acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Again, in context. Yes, he, I believe at this point he does at some point get released. He gets reincarcerated. The government is really after him. Nero gets onto the throne um, and he has him executed. But Paul doesn't know all those details. He just knows that there's probably an impending issue. And he wants to make sure that the Philippians are set. So if he dies, they're good on their own, right? So the, the number nine out of nine is to, to continue to bear fruit. Now remember, the Apostle Paul moves from Europe westward, I'm sorry, from the Middle East, from Turkey area westward into Greece, so he really makes a trans- transition from the Near East to Europe, right? Jumping into Philippi in what we know as modern-day Greece. By the way, that city still exists. If you're with us from the beginning, I showed you slides of the ruins of Philippi. He says that basically, you know, they were a big part of him establishing this church, these people. And, you know, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of folks didn't, weren't concerned, but they were very concerned. Listen, we don't talk about money unless it comes up. It's a no-brainer. Every ministry needs finances to to run it. This goes all the way back into the Old Testament with the priests. God even said to the people in his his law that the priests are going to be taking care of me. They're going to be ministering in the temple, the priests and the Levites. So everybody needs to get together and give them their tithes. That's where that comes from. They're 10%. So it can, and there was times where the temple was in disrepair. Doors were falling off. Things. Listen, it's a building just like anything else. And God was upset with the people because this was his house that they weren't repairing. So however you look at it, in every, any which way, ministry needs financial backing. Now, again, Paul wasn't begging for money. What was he doing? He was taking a historical look. He was looking back retrospectively and said, this is what you guys did. I took note of it. And it was good. He encouraged them to keep that practice irrespective of his own personal fate. He was saying that it was good to give, it was good to support the work of God, it was good to be sacrificial, and he uses um, allusions of the parallels of the actual offerings in the temple, these sacrificial offerings. He makes a comparison. And he says, and my God will supply all of your need. Where's Pastor Sam Turner? There he is. He often says to me, quote, you can't outgive God, right? Says that many a times. And there's a principle of, now, this is important. Again, remember I talked about principles in Christianity that Satan takes and tries to twist so that unbelievers are not attractive to the things of God. 
not attracted to it. There's a principle of just, have a gen- just having a generous heart, and those blessings will come back to you, I say, like a boomerang. It comes, starts to come back, you know, and God loves a generous heart. Sadly, we've seen a lot of abuses in this. We've seen some of these multimillionaire, almost on billionaire supposed pastors who they want you to give money and not have your cancer treatment so they can get another private jet. That is an aberration. That's not what's being spoken about here. That is Looney Tunes. Honestly, a ministry like that, there was a, um, an expose done on Kenneth Copeland, one of the most wealthiest of these faith preachers. And uh, these were elderly women giving up their cancer medication money to send to him because he says, you know, God will take care of you. That's not what this is. That's twisted. And I will preach against that till my very last day. But there is a principle that God loves generosity. You know, it could be supporting a, a missionary. It could be something that, Jesus, like Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You don't trumpet it, but God sees it. He sees that generosity. Maybe somebody in your neighborhood who's, who's poor, who's going to lose their home, and you, you go and you help them out. There's so many examples that I could come up with because money is a funny thing in Western society. You know, we'll give anything, but, you know, I don't want to part with that. I, I need that. And what we forget is what Pastor Sam says, you can't outgive God. If you have a heart of generosity, God will provide these things. It just is. And what he's saying is, remember I said this is important. He wasn't speaking about the actual, he was speaking about the bearing fruit portion. Right? Generosity, there could be generosity, it could be service to the Lord, it could be giving your time and mentoring and disciple somebody. These are things that we do as Christians where we bear fruit, spiritual fruit, according to John 15. And Jesus is saying, uh, the Apostle Paul is saying, and Jesus said, don't lose sight of that. Don't stop doing that. So nine out of nine, maybe I saved the best for last. All right? Last few verses, verse 20. It says, now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren who are with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. So the conclusion. Remember I said Christianity is supposed to be a warm faith. Walking into a church where nobody says hello, nobody greets you, and they almost look at you, and and I, to me this is, I'm used to Calvary, so I remember somebody telling me this about a particular church, and he, he, you know, nobody said hello. It was very clear that it was a closed church. It was a, so, and I'm like, wow, that to me is odd, you know, because Christianity is a warm faith. We're going to take communion today. We worship the Lord together. We take up the body of Christ together, right? We're all brothers and sisters here. So greet every saint. I want everybody there greeted. I say hello to all of them, he's saying. And all the saints here, we all greet you too. So all the people that are with me, they're greeting you as well. So these nine parting thoughts were for the Philippians to have a successful Christian walk, but it's for us as well. This is very important because the moniker or the tag or whatever you want to call it to this book is joy can't be jailed. And I think that's one of the most impressive parts about the Apostle Paul's character was he was in prison, really wrongly incarcerated, Talk about all the the worst situation you could imagine. And here he is writing a letter to free people telling them about joy. Joy can't be jailed. 
And I think that if we don't learn or get something out of every book that we study, we're doing ourselves a disservice to our own faith. See, Paul was, he was a thermostat. He wasn't a thermometer. If we're like a thermometer, when the temperature in the room goes up, then our needle moves. If the temperature goes down, our needle goes down. A thermostat's different. A thermostat sets the temperature. If your needle is at 80, the room goes up to 80. If yours goes down to 60, the room goes down to 60. The Apostle Paul didn't allow circumstances to affect him negatively. The Apostle Paul set the tone in the room. He set the tone in the church. right? And he can only do that through the Spirit of God. Let's make that clear. There's no such thing as a super saint. It's basically how much we can receive of the Holy Spirit and let that flow through us and let us be the agents of change because of who? The greatest agent of change. That's God. It's the Holy Spirit. Where are we today, brothers and sisters? Are we thermometers or are we thermostats? Are we reactive? Everything we see, we react to. Or are we proactive? Like thermostats. Are we proactive? Are we, do we see a situation? Do we read what the Spirit is saying? Do we understand the Word? And do we try to be those agents of change for positive? Do we try to bring people to the cross? Do we try to, maybe if we're even more on the shy side, that maybe our witness is something that speaks for itself. That we don't necessarily have to use words, but it's our witness and people will ask us. So I just would say that, that if we really want to be obedient, which I believe everybody does, every time we finish a book, that we look back and we say, okay, Lord, we get into our private places and our prayer closets and ask the Lord, what, what did you want to show me through that book? Because I could go up here every Sunday and do the circuit. I could talk about love one Sunday. I could talk about forgiveness another Sunday. And I could, I could you know, do tricks and stuff and, <laughs> and make you real excited emotionally and then leave you here with no meat in your belly, spiritually. Apostle Paul speaks about spiritual milk versus spiritual meat. But we, in this church, and we, we do, we'll go into the Old Testament and, and I'm told by, um, you know, the sources that that's no way to grow your church. This is how you grow your church. But my concern, and the pastors here, our concern is that you're fed the Word, that you get a diverse application of Scripture. So we're in the New Testament. We're going to go to Ezra after this. Then we're going to go back to the New Testament. I'm probably going to do some parables. So when you stay here long enough, you're fed a diversity of the Word of God, and you now, you can go out there, and God can use that... that um, cachet or that um, you know built up of scripture and with his holy spirit that you can be that agent of change so my prayer for us this morning is that we do go home and we do ask the lord what did you want to show me through that book because i can tell you this i learned something through this book and that's between me and the lord and and i'm happy that he did show it to me let's pray You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.